This morning we're going to be looking at another passage in the book of Hebrews. Just a few verses after where we left off last week. If you recall what we had talked about last week, the author of Hebrews has a chief concern, the reality that the believers he was addressing were in serious danger of turning away from Christ and going back to the familiar but now apostate religion of the Jews. See, I call those Jews who rejected the Messiah and rejected the message of the apostles, I call them apostate. It might sound unique or sound different than what you normally hear if we're talking about Judaism. But if we think about it, in re- because they rejected the hope and fulfillment of their fathers. So the Jews in the day of Jesus that saw him, that understood, see what, saw what was going on, rejected him, rejected the promised one from God, those Jews didn't actually maintain the religion of the fathers, the religion of the patriarchs. They didn't stay in the same tradition. They actually abandoned it because they abandoned the purpose, the hope, the fulfillment of everything from Abraham down that they had been waiting for. The Jewish religion as it stood then in rejection of Christ and as it stands now in perpetual rejection of the Son of God is a dead and false religion. And how can I make that statement that strongly? Well, Jesus makes very clear, if you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father. You cannot cling to God the Father. You cannot cling to Yahweh as your God and reject His Son. As the author of Hebrews wrote this letter, there was tremendous pressure, as we talked about last week, on these Jewish believers to abandon the way, to abandon the the narrow path in following Christ and return. Actually, I think more correctly, there was pressure for them to abandon the one who fulfilled their religion, pressure to turn aside from God's plan, and return to the now empty traditions of their people. And the reality in this congregation, in this early church that the author of Hebrews is writing to, is there are already many who had given in to that pressure and had walked away. This heartbreaking reality that there were believers whom they had known and had loved and had abandoned them, this is the backdrop of this entire letter of Hebrews. Just think of the heartache of, of somebody that you've come to know and love. People in a small group, people who you've been doing a life together, following after Christ together, sacrificing in obedience to Christ. And then you see them waver. And you see them look more longingly at the life that is not contain that pressure, that the life that is more ease at ease with the world, and you watch them walk away. Imagine how heartbreaking that would be for us, for somebody that we've loved and cared about and, and poured ourselves into to watch them walk away and to feel that temptation ourselves. Well, we looked last week at Jesus being the perfect 
revelation of God. That Jesus, in fact, is a much better revelation of God than was ever given to the prophets through their visions and dreams. Well, the author is going to continue in that theme as we look this week and showing how Jesus is greater than the angels. And while that might not mean a whole lot to us, we don't put a lot of emphasis on angels. We kind of tend to downplay angelic and demonic forces. That wasn't true in the first century. The first century Jew had a much more robust understanding and appreciation of angels and their place in creation. And not just a much more robust appreciation of it, something that actually often borderlined or fell right into idolatry and the worship of angels. So they had a much more big view of what angels are. And just to provide the context, we're going to focus this morning on Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 14. But I'm going to read starting in verse 4 that we finished with last week, all the way through the first few verses of chapter 2, just to kind of give us the context of, of where the author is going here. So Hebrews 1, starting in verse 4. Actually, I'm going to start with the last half of verse 3. When he had made purification of sins, again, it's talking about Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he brings the firstborn into the world... He says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his ministers angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become like an old garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not they all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I want us to pause just for a moment this morning and to think of the vastness and the wonder of creation. Think of the universe as a whole. As I consider the entirety of creation, I am struck both by the awesome majesty and scale, 
by the variety, the beauty, the complexity of everything that we see around us. But I'm also struck by those things that we can't yet see and can only speculate upon. Sort of the wonders of science. That there are those who think every breakthrough in science is a further evidence against a creator. And I see every breakthrough in science as a greater evidence of just how intelligent and wonderfully made this universe is. There are building blocks. And at the time when the cell was considered the smallest, and the time that the atom was considered the smallest, now they've got quarks and gluons and things that I haven't heard of yet because I haven't been in physics in a while. But the greater technology advances, the more they have to theorize of smaller things, smaller pieces, more complex forces going on, even within a single atom that holds an atom together, much less a complex being. While I am struck by the beauty and the complexity, I'm also struck by the vivid contrast of all that is beautiful and life-giving to that which is awesome, terrible, and destructive. Just think of the power of, of tornadoes, the power of hurricanes or volcanoes. Think of the supernova of stars. Forces that we can't even comprehend. Black holes so vast and so dense and powerful that not even light can escape them. So where did all this come from? Why is all of this here? What can explain both the beauty and the wonder of what we see as well as the chaos and the destruction? What is it that holds this universe together? And while the world may be content to point to natural forces, natural causes, and theories that can't explain a thing but push it back so far back in time that billions of years covers for the magical forces necessary. While they are content and the world may be content to push it off to there, Scripture makes it clear that Christ is the reason that all of this exists. The Christ holds it all together. Paul echoes this in first or sorry, not first, there is only one. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. And Paul says this He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Not only does He do all things, all physical matter, all those things come from Him, but the very concepts of authority, of power, of glory are from Him. By His Word, gravity holds our planet in its course around the sun. By His Word, matter and energy, life and the soul are maintained and preserved. If He would but for a moment release His control on creation, all would be thrown into chaos. Everything would cease to exist. All things exist because of Him. All things remain because of Him. 
All things exist for Him. Every star, every planet, every molecule, every being, every soul, all things were established by Him and for Him. Of course, the curse of sin on creation means that not everything we see around us is friendly. Not everything is is purely wonderful and life-giving. Not everything maintains the beauty of its created design. All of creation groans. This is the way that Paul talks about creation groans because of the curse that has been inflicted upon it. Creation itself waits for the fullness of the redemption story to be played out so that it might be restored. So that it might see redemption to be restored to its perfect created purpose. Can we even imagine creation without this stain of sin? Flowers that do not prick us when we go to touch them. Animals that do not try to bite our hand off if we go to pet them. These terrible forces of nature no longer seeking to destroy us in this hostile land. See, we can see the effects of God God drawing back His sustaining power in creation, even in a small way. We see that effect in the fall of the devil and his followers. That great and mighty host of angelic beings who fell from glory. In a similar way, when not held by the sustaining power of God to the created purpose, mankind rebelled against the very image of their creation. The physical world is in decay, and death and destruction are the most certain and dependable realities in our existence. And we know that were He, were Christ to let go of His hold, everything would cease. All those forces that bind these only theorized elements of an atom together, that control the, the path of an electron flowing around in an atom, those forces that we cannot understand and we can only theorize because we see the result, all those would cease for Christ, but just let go of His hold. We have the knowledge that the chaos and destruction results of the chaotic and destructive results of the curse are mankind's legacy in creation. That's the legacy of mankind in creation. Yet, we have the hope of new bodies. We have the hope of a new heavens and a new earth. We have the hope of a restored creation that will not decay because Christ will uphold it just as we have hope that He will uphold us in glory and in perfection. Well, verse 10 of our passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 1, the author is quoting from Psalm 102. And he doesn't hesitate to apply these words directly to Jesus. 
So from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. It says, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you will endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. All of creation is subject to decay and is sustained only by the will of God. The Creator, the Son of God, will one day cast off this present world as an old shirt and put on a new one. The angels, great and mighty as they are, are yet just part of that created order sustained only by the will of God. And the Son of God is as much greater than they are than the tailor is greater than the shirt that he sews together and later has the ability to discard once it is past its usefulness. That the angels are no longer able to fall, that we have no expectation of more angels falling and turning away from God is only because it is the will of God to maintain them in their current perfection. Given the opportunity... Even the angels were not able to hold themselves in perfection. Even the angels were not able to sustain themselves in the, in the will and pleasure of God. But a great host of them rebelled against their design and invoked the terrible wrath of God. Unless we forget, let's remember two things. One, salvation was made for mankind. There is no salvation that has been made for the angels. And two, hell ultimately was created for Satan and his angels. That mankind gets, the, that unbelieving mankind gets taken and thrown into there with them is a, is a later act of destruction and judgment of God. I think we, we tend to downplay or forget the seriousness of what it was when the angels rebelled against their creator and fell. But in a similar way, man, when he was not bound by God's Spirit and unity of the will of the Father, man turned aside from order into chaos and he rebelled against the very one in whose image they were created. There have actually been many in in different points in church history that have tied these two rebellions together. It has been held that the angels fell because mankind so much apparently weaker and less majestic than them, were given dominion over the world. And mankind in turn fell when they were given the promises from an angel that they could exceed the glory of their creation. Now both men and angels were subject to decay and corruption. Now whether or not that correlation is accurate, it's not, we don't have that much information biblically we do know that that satan fell that wanted to place himself above with god believing in his own majesty essentially his own hype of his greatness and brought many with him and mankind fell because they were promised that they would be made like god promised something above what god had given them whatever that correlation is there 
We know that they both fell because they wanted something other than what the Creator had designed for them. Of course, not only are the created beings, the intelligent beings, angels and mankind subject to decay, the universe itself feels the effects of rebellion against God. Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 19 through 22, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Just that vivid, vivid imagery of creation just groaning and, and feeling the pains of what has been inflicted upon it. All of creation is changeable and corruptible. God alone does not change and cannot be corrupted. Think about that distinction for a moment, because that's a lot of what the author of Hebrews was getting at in this passage. God the Son has always been, is, and will always be perfect. His will and His nature have always been continue to be, and will always be in perfect unity with the Father. There is no opportunity for corruption in the relationship between the Father and the Son, for deviation between the will of the Father and of the Son. And Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, and yet also, Jesus is humanity elevated to its full designed, intended potential. This Jesus is greater than all of creation. He will remain unchanged. He will remain unchallenged for all eternity. The universe will be destroyed and replaced, yet Jesus will remain forever the same. As we follow the logic and and the argument of the author in Hebrews, God the Son is greater than the angels because He is eternally unchangeable, incorruptible, and self-sustaining. They are not. The angels are temporal. They had a beginning. They are corruptible. A great host of them fell in rebellion against God, and they are sustained only by the Word of God. All of this is revealed clearly in the rightful and fitting end goal that is set before them. Because the Son of God will reign over all things, and the angels will serve Him and worship Him. Well, the author continues quoting his, continues his argument for the superiority of Christ by quoting Psalm 110. He says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. None of the angels were ever granted their own dominion. None of the angels were ever invited to sit down at the right hand of the Father in majesty. None of the angels were promised that their enemies would be defeated. They were called to serve 
And they continually stand ready to be sent out according to the interests of God to fight the enemies of God for the glory of God. We just think of this imagery of putting someone's feet on another person's neck or making their enemies a footstool for their feet. It recalls the imagery that we see in, in Joshua as the armies of God subdued the people in the land before them. In Joshua 10.24, we read this. When they brought these kings to Joshua, so not, not peasants, not common soldiers, when they brought these kings of the nations out to Joshua, Joshua called for the men of Israel. He said to their chiefs and their men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and put their feet on their necks. I think it's hard to picture a more vivid and tangible way of of expressing absolute subjection and dominance, of showing absolute, complete defeat than to make someone who has been defeated lay down before the victor and let the victor put their foot on their neck. This is not just some little show of honor or respect. This is not simply turning over a sword and saying, good job, you had the field today, the battle was yours. No. This is a humiliating posture that reveals a complete lack of will or ability to resist any longer. And it's this imagery that is used to describe how the enemies of God will be brought in subjection and complete defeat before the feet of Christ. The angels will play a significant role in this battle, yet it is not their enemies that they war against, but the enemies of God. It is not their victory they pursue, but Christ's. All powers and dominions are and will be brought into complete subjection to the Son, not the angels. He will reign and they will serve. So remember this image, this theme the author is working in. Christ is superior to everything that his audience once placed their hope and confidence in. He is greater than the prophets. He is the greater revelation of God. He is greater than the angels. And as the author will go on to show later in the book of Hebrews, his is a greater priesthood and the new covenant issuing forth from his blood is a greater covenant well I think if we're going to look at the just how the destiny of the son is to have dominion over all creation we need to look at this both from the aspect of his divinity and his humanity the the doctrine of the hypostatic union that God is Our Jesus is truly God and truly man. Someone that there's there's two natures in one. That it's he he is both truly God and truly man. In reference to his divinity, as creator of all things, it is only right that he would be above all things, that he would claim dominion over the works of his hands. The author of Hebrews here 
it's clear to point out that everything comes forth from Christ. He is Creator. Just think of the relationship of the members of the Holy Trinity. God the Father exists outside of time and space. Follow me just for a moment with this. Creation is within God the Father. God the Father is not within creation. So what it means to say that God is everywhere. Though it is understandably hard to imagine just how this looks. But God has no physical form. God is spirit. It only makes sense that God would not be within creation, but that creation would be within Him. Outside of creation, God the Father possesses authority over creation, yet tangible dominion and rule could only be possible from within. Enter into that conversation the second person of the Trinity and the Incarnation. See, the Incarnation is the mechanism whereby the eternal God could enter into His creation and tangibly seize dominion over all of it. Ultimately, mankind in the image of God was, was placed here to have dominion in His name, in His image. Even from the beginning of creation, it was designed that, that the image of God would rule and have dominion. But the ultimate purpose was for God the Son to enter into that creation, to seize dominion. The Father outside of creation, the Son within creation, remaining in perfect unity and communion because of the Holy Spirit that binds them one to another. The relationship of the Trinity is seen with the Son winning the victory, the Father subjecting every rule and authority under the feet of the Son, and then the Son Himself subjecting all creation back to the Father. God, inside and outside of creation, receives glory and honor and praise, for He is worthy. Look at a uh, passage spelling this out from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. And there Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each to his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after those that are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over all the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are in subjection, it is evident that he is expected to put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to the one whom subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Just a fuller explanation of of God placing all things under the feet of Christ and then Christ taking all that and giving that to the Father, to the glory of the name of His Father. Well, in divinity, dominion was seized. But in humanity, it was reclaimed. 
In reference to Jesus' humanity, we must remember to whom dominion was initially given in creation. We read in Genesis 1, 26-28. He says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That God would enter into creation and claim dominion over all things is shadowed in the fact that He made, gave dominion to man. Man was created in God's image, and he was charged with the rule of the world. And then God, taking on humanity, would reclaim that dominion for man once man had lost it. To say that Jesus had to reclaim dominion over the world for humanity realizes that that dominion that was given to Adam in the garden was lost. When Jesus walked on this earth, there was a false king claiming dominion over the world. When Jesus came to this earth, there was a pretender on the throne. We look at Matthew 4, 8, 9 from the temptation of Jesus. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. I think often we're tempted to look at that passage and say, the devil had no ability to promise these things to Christ. He was in no position to offer Jesus anything. These were false, empty promises from him. And while it is true that the devil had no right to rule, the devil did have dominion over the world. He truly offered this kingdom to Christ if he would but worship him. It was in his power to give at that time. Because man had relinquished his rule over the world. Man had cast aside his proper dominion that had been entrusted to him. And it was necessary for Christ to come and reclaim that dominion. He had to come and win every victory, defeat every enemy, and take what was rightfully his by force. It was the destiny of the Son of God to enter into His Father's creation and seize dominion over all things. To do this as God and to reclaim dominion over the world as man. Well, if it is the destiny of the Son of God to rule, then what is the destiny of angels? If the whole point of the author of Hebrews focusing on these things is to show that Christ is greater than the angels. So place your faith in the one that is greater rather than the one that is lesser. What is the destiny of the angels? Well, the author continued there in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 1. Are these angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? It is clear that Christ 
is destined to rule and the angels are destined to render service. As created beings, the angels are subject to the purpose of their creation. They were created and destined for service. They were created to serve God. They were created to worship God. To bring His Word to His people. To make war against His enemies. To carry out His judgments. Yet there is no dominion given to the angels. Their purpose is to serve. They have no claim of their own, but only act on and in the interests of God. We must be very careful not to take this to somehow diminish the glory of the creation and the purpose of angels. What greater purpose could anything in creation have than to exist solely to glorify the Creator, to exist solely to worship the Creator, to exist solely to be at the ever-service of the Creator? They have a great and glorious purpose. They have a great and glorious and honorable privilege. And it is a great destiny. However, their destiny is not the destiny of Christ. They are not destined to rule, but to serve. And oh, what a service. The angels serve God. Even as the angels sought to defeat their destiny, and the, the, the great host constantly rebelled against God and fell, yet they will still serve God's purpose as objects of His wrath and an unimaginably terrible existence for eternity. Even in trying not to serve God's purposes, they will yet serve as a reminder of the reward of faithfulness to the angels in glory, and a perpetual testimony to the holiness of God. I want to look again at verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? But we know beyond doubt that the angels exist to serve God. That is abundantly clear in Scripture. Yet who is it that the author of Hebrews say that they are to render service to? He says that they render service to those who will inherit salvation. The truth of that single sentence is so great and wonderful that if Scripture didn't make it perfectly clear for us, I could scarcely think to imagine a future so lofty and so grand for any of us. See, this verse is speaking of our destiny in Christ. One of the truly mind-blowing aspects of the Gospel is that the destiny of the redeemed is so closely tied and united in the destiny of Christ. We've already looked at what the destiny of the Son of God is. So just what does that have to do with us? How can I make the claim that our destiny is so closely tied to the destiny of Christ? I'm going to rattle off some, some different passages here. Romans 8, 15-17 For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, 
But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies within our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Colossians 3, 3 and 4. For you have died to your life, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. 2 Timothy 2, 11-13. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we, win, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Second Thessalonians 2.14 It was for this that He called you through our Gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just one more. Revelation 5.8-10 When He had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb each one holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. The reason I I felt compelled to share that many verses confirming the same truth, because if it wasn't this clear in Scripture, I wouldn't dare speak of it. We are destined to share in the Son of God's inheritance, to be revealed in His glory, to be like Him, to reign with Him. The angels in all their power and majesty are called to serve us to this end. How great a salvation it is that is ours that such wonderful and terrible creatures as these would be called upon to render service to us. How great an inheritance. How great a Savior. See, the eternal destiny for believers has become so confused in popular evangelicalism that most people who call themselves Christians do not know what eternity will be like for the redeemed. They have no concept of what the Bible actually says about what our eternity will be. They might be okay with terms like glory and reigning. Those might not be offensive I think the prevailing idea of eternity has much more, looks much more like an unending getaway vacation than it does a victorious king on a throne that will be continually worshipped and adored. What are we going to do with all this glory, all this honor, 
all this splendor that is promised for us in eternity as we share in the inheritance of the Son, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to float on clouds and play harps? Are we going to play golf for millions of years? Are we going to perfect our, our song, our poetry? Are we going to take time to have a wonderful little picnic with everybody that's ever existed? Is that what we're going to do with it? No. Like the angels, the greater glory that we are given will serve to offer greater worship to the one who is worthy. We are to be made glorious, not so that we can be praised, but so that we might praise our God and that our praise might be more fitting of the glory of the one who is worthy of our praise. More fitting for the one who captured us, who saved us, who redeemed us. The one who sits on the throne. We were given greater glory so that we might offer greater worship. If this future does not seize your heart, if that vision does not fill you with wonder and excitement, if it is not mind-blowing to you that the filthy rags that we are now able to offer our Savior will be replaced with riches and glory worthy of Him, If that does not stir your spirit, then I am concerned that your desire is more for your glory than it is for His. Let's call that what it is. That is idolatry. The Spirit of Christ within us desires glory so that we might more suitably honor Him. Whereas the Spirit of this world deserves or desires glory so that we might more suitably honor ourselves. Consider the destiny of the angels to externally, eternally extend their, ever, their every glory, their ever, every majesty, their every wonder, their beauty, to, to internally pour, project all of that into the worship of God. To put all of themselves into the worship of God. And consider our destiny in Christ. To be made glorious with Him. As His spotless bride. And spend eternity in perpetual communion with our Savior. Where our every thought, our every word, our every action will be one of unbridled worship of the one who is worthy. If this is not your hope, I pray that it might so become. If this is not your greatest desire, I urge you to repent of your idolatry. Repent of of clinging to something that is lesser than Christ, that is lesser than the destiny that is promised to all who put their faith in Him. Repent of the idolatry of, of seeking satisfaction and resting in anything that is lesser than Christ, even if that were to be an angel in majesty. Repent of that idolatry and seek your every satisfaction, your every hope in Christ alone. Oh, the wonder of it all, that we should gain so much 
from that which cost him so dearly. Truly, this Christ, this Son of God, is greater than the angels. Truly, he alone is worthy of our worship.